Well, I don't know if you remember this, but earlier this year, there was an especially bad outbreak of the flu across across the 48 states, hitting the East Coast the hardest. And the CDC reported that in the first week of January, the flu had reached epidemic proportions. As of January 12th, it had killed 29 children under the age of 18 this season alone. There was a shortage of vaccines, and some school districts even decided to close to prevent the spread of the flu. Now, I think pretty much everyone knows what to do these days to avoid getting the flu. And what are you supposed to do? Not come into contact with those who are infected. Wash your hands often, especially after shaking hands with someone. Promote your overall health by sleep, diet, exercise, and get the flu shot. We all know this, but how diligent are you at washing your hands every hour come flu season? I mean, you know better, but you forget. You just don't think of these things. But when the outbreak hits, people sure are stirred into action. They're much more diligent to actively remember and to put into practice what they already know. It was interesting to hear what some religious organizations did in response to the flu outbreak earlier this year. Some Catholic churches in Boston and New York, they stopped offering the shared chalice of consecrated wine during communion. I didn't grow up religious at all, but my grandmother was very Catholic, and so I went with her to Mass a few times. And I remember watching them all during communion, and they would go up front, and they would all drink from that same cup, or I guess they call it a chalice because it's much more special. But and I just remember thinking to myself, that, that's so nasty. I don't even share cups with my parents, let alone an entire church. So I guess to stop the spread of flu, it probably is a good idea to to drop the whole community drinking trough idea. And as a side note, since we know there's no such thing as holy water, they may as well replace that with a holy hand sanitizer or something along those lines and be more effective. Just a thought. But the point I'm making is that there's nothing like the threat of danger to remind people of what they already know and to spring them into action. It usually takes something bad for us to really do this, to act on all the things we know we should be doing. For another example, let's say that another virus was going around, a computer virus. Back in 2000, there was what's called the I Love You virus. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this. But it it struck computers worldwide. And this, this virus came as an email. It's really a worm. But it came as an email message with the title or the subject line saying, I love you, promising to be a a secret love letter from a a secret admirer. And the real danger came in the attachment. If you open the attachment, it ran a script on your computer, overwriting files. It sent a copy of itself to everyone in your address book. It even stole some passwords. And we hear about viruses like this all the time now in this age of computers. Now, hopefully, hopefully, you may not, but I hope you know what you're supposed to do to protect yourself from getting a computer virus. I mean, do you know? Never open up strange emails. Never open up attachments from people you don't know. Change your password often. Have a long password. Stuff like that. I mean, I hope you know this stuff. But but honestly, if you do, how often do you find yourself sitting up at night thinking, man, I really need to change my passwords this week? I mean, just never. It's just not on your radar. You're never, you're never thinking about these things. But if another big virus were to hit, or if you had a friend who told you that 
their identity was stolen online, it would probably spur you into action. It would get you thinking about these things and maybe you'd realize, well, maybe I should change my passwords. Again, there's nothing like a threat or danger to forcibly remind us of the things we need to be doing and then to get us into action. And not only do threats and dangers cause us to remember essential truths and act on them, but so do tests. Sometimes when you know you're going to be tested, it causes you to remember certain important things that otherwise you just never think about. For example, what if the DMV notified you that to renew your license this year, you had to take the written and driving test again? Even if you've had your license for decades, you had to do it over. If this happened, you'd probably jump into action. You'd first go and review the driver's manual. It's all the stuff you learned when you were 16, but you need a good reminder. For instance, you know the answer to this question. If you're approaching a a railroad crossing with no warning devices and are unable to see 400 feet down the tracks in one direction, what is the speed limit? Yeah, everyone knows that, right? You probably forgot. It's 15 miles an hour. Or another kind of a trick question. When you're emerging onto the freeway, you should be driving. A, at or near the same speed as the traffic on the freeway. B, 5 to 10 miles slower than the traffic on the freeway. Or C, the posted speed limit for traffic on the freeway. What's the answer? You think C? It is A, at or near the same speed as the traffic. The chances are you once knew this, but now that you're going to be tested on it, you realize you need to remember a lot of things. At the same time, you would also probably be more diligent to put these good driving habits into practice. We know that instructor is going to be watching you closely, and it would be so humiliating to fail. So in the weeks leading up to your test, You'd be extra diligent to drive with both hands on the steering wheel at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. To check your mirrors and look over your shoulder when changing lanes. And to stop an excruciatingly long full three seconds at a stoplight or a stop sign. You just want to pass the test without worry. But being confronted by the test actually is making you a better driver. And all of these same principles apply spiritually. Over time, it just happens. People grow spiritually complacent. I mean, you know a thing or two about the Bible. You know how God wants you to live, but your mind wanders. You get distracted by the things of the world. God wants you to be passionately pursuing him in this life, but you cool down and you start living for the moment. But there's nothing like a good spiritual threat or danger or test to snap you out of it, to remind you of who you are in Christ and what you should be doing. For example, do you know that you should be praying often? Of course. Of course you know that. You know that intellectually, but but how often are you praying? If your answer is not that much, you have a problem. But it's not a knowledge problem. It is a reminder problem. You need to be constantly reminded, and then you need to act on what you know. And sometimes God is the one to send you 
such a reminder? I mean, do you just keep on forgetting and failing to pray even though you know better? Well, God just might send you a test or a trial to remind you. I mean, who knows? You might find yourself at the doctor's office and they say they found a lump and they're going to test it for cancer. They'll get back to you in six weeks. Do you think you'll be praying much during those six weeks? Yeah. We talk about a reminder to pray, a reminder to trust God. God uses tests and trials to ensure that his people are constantly reminded of, of who they are in Christ, what this life is about, what they are to be doing. Earlier this year, we preached through 1 Peter in the Bible, and we learned countless times that God sends trials for this reason. Now, however, we are in 2 Peter, and we come to learn a similar but different lesson. In 1 Peter, we learned how God uses tests to remind his people of who they are in Christ and what they should be doing. And now in 2 Peter, we learn that God also uses danger to remind his people of who they are and what they should be doing. We enter this morning the last chapter in the short letter of 2 Peter. So why don't you grab your Bibles and turn there now to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. It's easy to find. Just turn to Revelation, last book of the Bible. Page your way backwards a little bit. Second Peter chapter 3. After several weeks, we made it through chapter 2, where Peter devotes a lot of time to exposing perhaps the greatest threat to the church, false teachers. False teachers are responsible for leading many away from the Lord and putting them on the path of destruction. And it's a real danger. This is a real threat to the church. But even in this, God has a purpose. For, for sometimes there's nothing like danger to remind you of who you are and what you should be doing. There's nothing like a threat to snap you out of your complacency, to spring you into action. And what we will come to learn from our text today is that is actually why Peter wrote Second Peter. In light of the danger posed by false teachers, Peter writes to issue that reminder to the churches. He's saying, look, don't fall asleep at the wheel. Wake up and remember the things you need to know. These false teachers, they're like a spiritual flu virus. Circulating around with the ability to make even those in the church spiritually sick, infecting the unsuspecting. Everyone who comes into contact with them is exposed and endangered. And this threat has reached epidemic proportions. And Peter was dealing with a real outbreak of false teaching. It was threatening to spread, to do real damage. So he was writing to inoculate the churches, to protect the churches. So just as in the physical world, when there is an outbreak, we are reminded to avoid the sick, wash our hands often. The same is true spiritually. 
When it comes to the disease of false teaching, we need to be reminded, first, avoid the sick. And Peter just spent all of chapter 2 telling us how to do that, telling us what are the symptoms of someone who is spiritually sick, a false teacher. At the same time, we need to be reminded to wash, to wash ourselves with the water of the word. And that is his reminder now in chapter 3. The best antidote to false teaching is just the truth, to just get a healthy dose of the truth. However, Christians can grow complacent. So Peter Peter is here to serve up a reminder. That's what we come to find now. Join me as I read 2 Peter chapter 3, and just the first two verses, verses 1 through 2. He writes, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now you might quickly read over these verses and think, There's not much there. They seem pretty straightforward. So why why are we going to spend an entire sermon on just these two seemingly simple verses? In reality, though, this passage is extremely important in 2 Peter. It's essentially his his thesis. This is his, his driving point, his thrust to the letter. You get this right, you get 2 Peter right, his aim And you learn an important lesson that God has for us. If Christians can just remember what God wants them to know and keep it in front of them at all times and live by it, it will go well for them. It will go well for them. This is a reminder to remember. And we still need this. Now this passage is short. It is relatively simple. So I don't have any sort of a fancy outline for you. I just want you to notice... First, the importance of reminders from verse 1. And second, the source of reminders from verse 2. First, the importance of reminders from verse 1. Then we'll see the source of reminders from verse 2. And let's begin with this from verse 1. The importance of reminders. Look again at verse 1. He says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The way Peter phrases this implies that this second letter, which we call Second Peter, was written not long after his first letter, First Peter. Apparently only a short time had elapsed since his first letter, and his great concern for the churches compelled him to write to them again quickly. And there's indeed, there's an urgency to his admonitions in Second Peter. He didn't want to wait very long. He had more to say, so he writes them a second letter. In First Peter, Peter wrote to encourage believers against the rise of persecution from outside the church. But in Second Peter, he's dealing with these false teachers who pose a greater threat because they're rising up from inside the church. 
And so he just had to get this letter of warning and reminder out there so that the churches would be aware of this new internal threat. And indeed, we see Peter's pastoral heart and love for the flock come out here in chapter 3. His tone in chapter 2 was rather harsh as he was calling out and rebuking and warning the church from false teachers in chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, as he turns his attention back toward the faithful, he expresses his his love for them and his his concern. He calls them, verse 1, beloved. They're loved of God, loved of of Peter himself. Four times he uses this word beloved in chapter 3. He's just now really overflowing in his concern, his care for the churches. Those who work to subvert the flock, those who are the wolves in sheep's clothing, they're not beloved. They're not a part of the family of God. They're on the outside. But those who call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, those who hold fast to the faith, they are in the family of God. They are beloved, loved brothers and sisters in Christ. So he marks off their love. And to the beloved, Peter writes a second letter. Both of these letters serve as reminders for the church. And some people try and postulate there's some other hidden letter here that he's talking about. But there's really not a shred of evidence for this. This first letter is none other than 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter and 2 Peter, Peter was not writing to brand new Christians who didn't know anything. He's writing to established Christians. They were established in the truth. I mean, they knew a thing or two. They knew about God. They knew about Jesus. They knew about salvation. They knew about the gospel. But in Peter's letters to them, he still tells them about these things. He still instructs them about the basics. And why? Well, they know it. But Peter knows they still need a reminder. Even those who are established in the truth, need a reminder. The same is true for us. And serving up reminders is Peter's aim in his second letter. If you remember from before, we saw this in chapter 1. Just turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1 really quick and look at verse 12. Remember what he said near the beginning, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir up, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. If you recall from Second Peter chapter 1, he started off just telling them about salvation and sanctification. And we're talking the basics, stuff every Christian should know. But he tells them again because, because we're prone to forget. We don't keep these essential truths in the front of our minds, letting them guide us all the time. And so we need reminders. Hence, 1 and 2 Peter. 
Now, Peter alluded to his reminding purpose at the beginning of Second Peter, and now he really states it plainly at the end in Second Peter chapter 3. And he says largely the same thing. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, like we just read, he uses this phrase that he intends to stir you up by way of reminder. And now in chapter 3, verse 1, he says pretty much the same thing. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, he is writing, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I like this word for stirring up. It evokes the same image in my mind every time. As kids, my sister, she would always pour, she'd always order iced tea at restaurants. It was her drink of choice. And then she would proceed to always pour in three, four, even five packs of sugar into her iced tea. And some of that sugar would dissolve, but most of it did what? Just settle down at the bottom. So with every sip from the straw, she would have to you know, violently stir it up. And most of the sugar, though, just sat at the bottom. Well, Christians can act like this sugar sometimes. And you initially, you dive into Christianity, and you're excited, you're moving, you're doing things. But after a while, you just settle down. You settle down. You get complacent. You're not pursuing new ways to serve. You're not searching the scriptures. You're not sharing the gospel with people. You just kind of you come to church and you just, you just kind of sit there. I mean, is that you? You come to church, you sit there nicely, but that's about it. I mean, otherwise, how would people know you're a Christian? You have no passion or desire for the things of the Lord. If this is you, you need to be stirred up. You snap out of it. Get your head in the race and, and wake up. In fact, this word for stirring up literally means to wake up, to rouse someone from sleep. Remember when Jesus stilled the sea? Him and the disciples got in a boat. We're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. And during this time, a, a sudden storm hit. And the disciples, they started to fear for their lives. And where was Jesus? He was just in the boat, fast asleep. And so what do the disciples do? It says they stirred him up. They woke him up. Same word. Same word that we have here. They roused him awake. And then Jesus calmed the sea. It's a great twist, by the way, because first Jesus was calm and the sea was stirred up. But then Jesus was stirred up and the sea became calm. But the disciples knew that when facing danger, they needed Jesus awake. See, when you're sleeping, you're not brain dead, but your mind is in park. I mean, you're not engaged. You're not aware. This is why you are most vulnerable when you're asleep. If someone threw a baseball at your head while you're awake, you try and catch it. You try and dodge or shield yourself. If someone threw a baseball at your head while you're asleep, get ready to feel some pain because you're not doing anything. Your mind is not engaged. You're not alert. You're in danger. And spiritually, not only are some Christians complacent, but they're asleep. They're just spiritually asleep. They're not alert. 
The spiritual baseball can be sailing at their head as we speak. They don't know better. They have no idea. They're oblivious because they're not aware. These people need to be woken up. They need to be stirred up. And all the more so if the danger is false teaching. The last thing Peter wants is to see these you know, relatively new Christians just get lazy, grow complacent, stop being on guard only to be led astray by some false teacher. So he's writing, again, to stir us up, to wake us up. And this might be something you really need. I mean, consider your life. Have you grown spiritually lazy and complacent? Do you find yourself passionately pursuing the things of the Lord? Or are you just coasting in neutral? And remember this. The only way you can cruise for neutral for long is by going downhill. And that's what you're doing if your mind is not engaged in pursuing the Lord. And speaking of your mind, so much of right living is derived from right thinking. Your mind needs, needs to be made right before your life can be made right. This is why being in Scripture is so important. It works to properly align and engage our minds so that we can walk rightly before the Lord, so that we can avoid danger when it comes. And Peter knows this. Peter knows how important the mind is. That's why he says in verse 1 that he wants to stir up what? Your sincere mind. When he says sincere, he means pure or uncorrupted or truthful. And this is referring to the mind that has not been corrupted and deceived by false teachers. And the word for sincere literally means son judged. Son judged. It's a great word picture. And preacher Chuck Swindoll has a good note here. He mentions how this word refers to the old practice of holding up pottery to the sunlight to see any cracks the potter tried to fill in with wax. It was the ancient way of passing off something used as new. If they had a cracked piece of pottery, they would just try and fill it in with with wax and hide the cracks, make it look new, paint over it. But you hold it up to the sunlight and it just shines right through. A good pottery then was called sun-judged, meaning it was sound. There's no cracks. There's no deception involved. And what Peter's saying is that God wants you to have a sun-judged mind. There are no cracks in your thinking, no fault lines brought on by the false teachers. And there's no deception in your thinking. Christians must not be those who deceive themselves into thinking that that wrong is right, or that it's okay to just coast downhill. And this all stands in great contrast to the false teachers who were corrupt in their minds, remember, and distorted in their thinking. And this can't be us. We need sound minds. As we learned, they were deliberately choosing to forget the truth that they know whereas we must be purposefully trying to remember the truth that we know. 
And all of this comes, verse 1, Peter says, what does he say at the end? By way of reminder. Just coming by way of reminder. Our culture is so obsessed with that which is new, you know, the cutting edge, the, the new gadget. And you, you've got to tell people something new, something they've never heard of before. Otherwise, they're not going to care. You hear that in the church as well. You know, you've got to, you've got to tell them something new. Otherwise, you know, why bother? But wait a second, though. I think we need reminders way more than we need new instruction. If we only ever heard things once and only once, never to be reminded of them again, just think of all the things we would forget. I mean, do you forget people's names? You meet someone new, like, oh, hi, you know, you find out their name, you start talking, and and like a minute later, you're like, I I forgot their name. What's their name? You forget. And what if you could never be reminded? That's not going to be good. But we don't operate like this. We need reminders. An entire industry is built off of this fact. That's why post-it notes exist. They exist because people are forgetful. You're to write something down that you need to remember, put it somewhere that you know you're going to run into, and then be reminded. Now just think of all the things you remind yourself of daily. Or better yet, this might be easier for you, think of all the things you remind your spouse of Daily. Or your children of. Daily. Do you spend more time giving them new information? Or more time telling them to do the things that they already know they should be doing? You know, husbands, put down the toilet seat. If your husband still has trouble with this, trust me, he knows better. (laughs) He knows what to do. It's not a knowledge problem. It's just a remembering problem. Or wives, remember to turn the lights off when you leave a room. Or children, remember to wake your bed. Or uh, not wake your bed, make your bed. You know, we all know better, we just forget. And so the point is, again, we need reminders. And don't be so enamored by always wanting to hear something new. Learn to value reminders. I've talked to some people, and, and some people, if they listen to a sermon and it's on a topic they've heard before, they just mentally check out. And they think, well, I already know that. I already know that. Now, why do I need to hear another sermon on, I don't know, trusting God or something like that? You know, I already know that. I don't don't need to listen. But yes, you do. You may not be learning something new, something earth-shattering, but that's okay. You need to value reminders especially of essential truths. Especially if you find yourself prone to being spiritually complacent and drowsy, you need to value those times when you're not being told something new, but when you're being shaken out of your seat by something you already know. If you're driving late at night, you start to nod off, your car starts to go out of your lane, wouldn't you appreciate someone, your passenger, is kind of yelling at you and, and shaking you and waking you up and saying, hey, pay attention. Keep your eyes on the road. I mean, things you already know, but you, you need them. You need them to tell you that. And we likewise need that, spiritually speaking, from time to time. 
So back to Second Peter. This is what he's doing in this letter. He's writing, letting us know. This is really the thrust of his entire letter. He's shaking us and stirring us up. He's splashing that cold water on our face to, to wake us up. And it's all just by way of reminder. Peter knows as a shepherd, if he can just if he can just get us to remember the things we know and need to know and then act on it, we'll be good. We'll be safe. And so we need this reminder to remember. This is our, our first point, the importance of reminders, that they really are important. And we need this reminder to remember. It begs a question, though. If reminders are so important, then what exactly should we be remembering? This leads to the second point. Secondly, now, the source of reminders. From verse 2, the source of reminders. And look at verse 2. He tells them about the importance of reminders. Verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. This is a reminder to remember the word of God. And nothing is more important to remember than God's word, which comes to us from the apostles and prophets and Jesus himself. Notice the three sources of God's authoritative revelation here. First, there are the holy prophets, he says, who have spoken beforehand. This is referring to none other than the Old Testament writings. This word for spoken is in the perfect tense. It just signals that the impact of their words carries on until today and even into the future. Though very, very old, the words of the Old Testament prophets still carry weight today because they come from God. I mean, just think, some of these words were written 3,500 years ago. But here we are today. We still read them, and they still change lives. You know, granted, we are not semi-nomadic Jews living in the arid Middle East in ancient times. That's just not us. But the message, the principles, the precepts of God's word are timeless and they still guide us today. And so first, Peter reminds us to remember the holy prophets. I mean, take Leviticus, for example, written by Moses, who is considered by the Jews to be the greatest of prophets in the Old Testament, actually. When you read Leviticus, you, you just can tell that this was a different time. This was a different time. There are so many rules and regulations about, about leprosy, about not eating pigs and crustaceans, about animal sacrifices. And you just think to yourself when you read that, what does this have to do with me today? And the answer is everything. Now, we know we're no longer bound by the Old Testament law, but we are still bound by the purpose of the law, which was holiness. 
That's a great theme of Leviticus. God tells them time and time again, he's giving them these laws because he wants them to be holy as he is holy. In fact, that's what Peter said in 1 Peter, that same point. So as you pick up your Bible one day and you find yourself reading through a book like Leviticus, you're going to be reminded as you read that God wants you to be holy, to be separate from the things of the world. And this reminder then is going to have its effect through the Spirit. It's going to remind you and convict you. Are you being holy? Or are you being stained and defiled by the things of the world? And what are you watching on TV? Would God be pleased? Are you being defiled by what you watch? What you listen to? What you do? And today, like I said, we're not bound by the Old Testament law. You can eat, you can eat all the swine and the shellfish that you want. Knock yourself out. But God still wants you to be holy. And the Old Testament is full of such reminders like this, just one of many found among the writings of the prophets. Secondly, Peter reminds us to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. And this brings us to the two other sources of God's revelation for man. Jesus himself came as the divine word, the word of God in the flesh. God reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus more than anywhere else. Remarkably, though, Jesus never wrote anything down. Isn't that interesting? He never wrote anything down. And Peter confirms that fact, mentioning here how it was the duty of the apostles to capture and pass on the revelation of Jesus. The apostles were those men handpicked by the Lord himself to be his representatives for the church. They were his mouthpiece for the church. And again, we still benefit from the record of their revelation, even though it's now 2,000 years later. Can, does that strike you ever? It's 2,000 years later, but the words are still living and active and fresh, and they change lives 2,000 years later. So whether it is the word of God literally coming from Jesus or that given by the apostles, you would still do well to remember it. Being filled and saturated with God's word like a soaked sponge, really it's the most essential element to having a thriving spiritual life. Some of you are perhaps never in the Bible. You aren't reading you aren't studying, you aren't remembering. And as a result, you're spiritually anemic. When you're in spiritual starvation mode and your life suffers as a result. If only we just snap out of it and come to truly desire the word and resolve to just spend time in it, your life would change. Your life would change. When put, some people hear this, they react negatively. They say, look, I've read the Bible. It's nice and all, but, but I've got real problems. And I want some real answers, something that's going to help me, something that's, that's actually going to work. So don't tell me just read the Bible. 
Now look, it's true. If you just read the Bible, all of your problems in life are not going to magically disappear. The Bible is not a magic spell book. However, if you read and put into practice everything God says, your life will change. You may still have problems, but you will handle them to the glory of God. You may still sin, but you will, you will deal with it to the glory of God. And you may not be perfect, but you will live to the glory of God. And that should be your purpose in the first place. And furthermore, if, if this is you, you are underestimating the power of the word. The reason Peter wants us to be reminded of the word so much is because this is the treasure trove of God's power to change lives. This is the means by which God produces change in our lives. I want you to do this. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. We're close. Just turn left, turn backwards, just a few pages. In Hebrews chapter 4. Peter wants us to be reminded, not of the horoscope, not of the latest fad, not of worldly wisdom. He wants us to be be reminded of God's word because he understands he values the convicting power of the word for those who are spiritually alive. Do you know that? The convicting power of the word. And let me show this to you in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Can you ever think of an occasion where you would want someone to cut you with a knife? Can you? I can. Surgery. If I have some problem on the inside of my body, I'm sure thankful doctors are able to cut me open and fix it. And that's what they do. They cut people open, which would normally otherwise hurt them, but they do this to heal. And that's also what the Bible does. It's living, it's active, it's sharp, it's piercing, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if you are being spiritually lazy, if you are complacent, even if you are harboring your favorite sin, God designed his word to pierce your heart with conviction. And if you're born again, it's going to hurt, but it's going to lead to change. It's going to change you. And Peter knew this. He wielded the sword of the word himself during his first sermon. After Pentecost, he preached the word to the crowd. Remember? The gospel of Jesus Christ. He told them about the life, death, resurrection, 
of Jesus, the Messiah, whom they crucified. He preached the gospel because he knew that the gospel was the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.16. And what was the result? What was the result of his word-filled preaching? And listen. At the end of his sermon, Acts 2, verse 36, he tells them at the end, he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he preaches the word to them. And what's the result? Verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? This is what the word does. This is what the word did to them. It cut them. It pierced their hearts. It convicted them of their sin, their rebellion against God. And it produced change. This cut was not unto death. It was unto life. And the cancer of their hidden sin was exposed. And they repented. And they were healed. They were saved. And the word still functions like this today. It still cuts. It still convicts. It still produces change. It still brings people to life. It still brings healing to believers. God wants you to change, right? He wants you to become more like Christ. And this is why you need constant reminders of the word Because if you're spiritually alive, if you've been born again by placing your faith in Christ, the Word will do its work on you. It'll do its work on you. Yes, it's going to make you feel uncomfortable at times. But that's a good thing. Nobody likes going to the dentist. It is uncomfortable. It is painful to have your teeth cleaned, yet we still go voluntarily. Why? Well, because we know it's for our good. It's for our our health. And likewise, you need to learn to embrace the conviction that the word brings, even if it's uncomfortable. You need to embrace that. Can I give you you a few examples? Let's see if any of you are, are, are cut here, are stabbed by the word. So just listen along. Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, have you been sacrificially loving your wives lately? Meaning, have you been sacrificing your own needs and wants for the betterment of your wife? Or Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So wives, have you been the, the supportive, suitable helper to your husbands lately? Have you been promoting their leadership, trying to help them, showing them respect? Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents, and fathers especially, When was the last time you read the Bible with your children? Or prayed with them? Or prayed for them? 
or instructed them about the Lord? I mean, are you doing this regularly? Are you doing this daily? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So children, are you obeying your parents? And even if you're not always happy about it, do you listen because you care more about obeying your Father in heaven? Here's another one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So how's your sexual purity? And for the guys especially, are you winning the war with lust? Are you even waging the war with lust? Another, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you nor ever forsake you. For all of you, I mean, do you harbor greed in your heart? Will you sin to get money? Will you sin to keep from losing money? Do you serve money more than you serve God? Lastly, Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus said, In everything, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And in all these verses, and I could keep going, of course, right? It's the word. In all these verses, was there anything you just never heard of before? Probably not. I mean, was there anything like, well, I've never heard that before? Probably not. You, you probably already knew all this information. You knew it, but did you feel anything? Did you feel any conviction, that little that prick in your conscience from the word? Chances are, if you're not totally hardened in your sin, then yes. If you're spiritually alive, you felt something. And, and that's the point, and it's a good thing. Until you can live a completely perfect life free from sin, you need the word to perform surgery on you every day. So I'll tell you what to do. Forget the gurus. Forget all those self-help books. Forget all the people and the shows and the books that try and make you a better person apart from God's word because they're powerless. They have no power. Instead, opt for the word. God has put his power in the word. Take out that self-help CD in your car and put in the Bible on tape. Turn off the, the daytime talk show and listen to a sermon. Put down the latest book on spiritual discovery and, and pick up the two-edged sword. This is the way to grow in a manner pleasing to the Lord. Isn't that what you're trying to do? If you know the Lord, you love him. You want to grow in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And how do you do that? 
Peter himself told us back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He said, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of what? The word. So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That's how you do it. A word of warning is appropriate here, though. Don't forget, as we saw, the sword of the word is two-edged. Everybody is cut by the word. Everyone is laid bare and just filleted open by the word. Yet one side cuts to heal, and the other side cuts to judge. The same word which brings life to some brings judgment to others. So the question is, how are you going to respond to the word? How will you respond to the gospel? How will you respond to the conviction that the word brings? And I urge you not to turn a cold heart against the word. Yeah, it's uncomfortable when our sin is exposed. But don't turn against that. Accept that, value that, and do what is right. The false teachers, they deny those feelings of conviction and they just suppress them. They push them further and further down, way deep, that they couldn't feel them anymore. But that just sealed their own destruction and do not follow them to that place. We can say a lot more here. In fact, we will next week. Because specifically in the context of this chapter, Peter wants us to remember one thing in particular, and that is the second coming of Christ. To save, to judge, we need to remember that often and live in light of that. We'll see that starting next week. But for now, just learn this general but essential lesson. Reminders are important. And reminders of the word are most important. And so fill your life with them. You need to get serious about filling your life with the word. You want to be learning about God, but you want to be remembering God as well. God so desperately wants us to remember him. And it's, it's for our own good as well. So embrace the conviction the Bible brings. Put into practice what God says Seek to grow by his grace. And not only is that your surest protection from false teaching, but that is your sure ticket to be pleasing to the Lord. Remember the word. And join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow, we, we praise and thank you for your word. Just the fact that you revealed yourself to us, just the fact that you gave us your word and we hold it in our hands is the grace of God that we even can know you. So we thank you for your word, the word that judges, the word that heals, the word that exposes, the word that saves. Thank you for your word and help us all to be men and women of the book, to be in your word, to value it, to love it. I pray for those here who just, they don't have that desire that you would give them the desire. I pray that you work in their hearts to, to create a longing in them for the pure milk of the word so that by it they may grow in respect to their salvation. 
You need to change us, Lord, and we pray that you do that work. At the same time, may we all be diligent to put the word ever before us that we would be reminded of all at all times of who we are in Christ, what this life is about, and what you want us to be doing. Enable us and help us in this regard. And as we are reminded, Lord, and may we be those who carry it out and put into practice what we learn. That's how we're going to grow. That's how we're going to honor you. That's how we're going to be safe from danger. That's how we give you glory. So we thank you again for your word. We treasure it as it points us to you. In your name we pray. Amen.